Hello, church family. Well, the Christmas season is upon us, and there are many things to be thankful for. God is so good to this church, I think you'll agree. And one of the things we're particularly grateful for this weekend is our Half Moon congregation. Friday, December 7, marked the 10th anniversary of our Half Moon campus. Yes, 10 years ago, God brought together about 153 pioneers from our Latham congregation who were willing to bravely go where no one had ever gone before and launch a brand new Grace Campus in Half Moon. Under Pastor Justin Yim's leadership, these faithful servants dared to dream a dream of saved lives, changed souls, and a whole community transformed by Jesus Christ. For 10 years now, God has made that dream a reality. Congratulations and happy birthday. You just added 8,000 additional square feet to your building and the mission, oh, the mission of making more and better disciples goes on more powerfully than ever. So as you begin your next 10 years, let's keep dreaming together. Dare to dream that God will save more lives, more marriages, more broken and shattered people than ever. Let's pray for the harvest. I think you'll agree, we live in perilous times and God's word through Gabriel is more relevant than ever. The angel said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Congratulations, dear congregation of Half Moon. You have winsomely shared that message now for 10 years. God bless you as you keep on dreaming God's dream for the future. Today we held our monthly all staff meeting here in the brand new meeting space in our Half Moon edition called Level 2. In addition to the various midweek usage that this space receives, this room is packed on Sundays with kids in the morning, during church services, and students grades 7 through 12 at night. In fact, a few weeks back, we had well over 100 students attend My Hope, and at the conclusion of the service, over 20 of those students stood to their feet to signify their decision to begin their relationship with Jesus. From the bottom of my heart as a pastor, thank you, thank you for allowing God to use you by your faithful giving to the 2020 Vision Campaign to help make these types of moments and these types of spaces to happen. Thank you for being so consistent with your gifts to 2020. Now our giving total for the 2020 Vision Campaign is almost $3 million. If you haven't made a pledge uh, to the 2020 campaign or given your first gift, don't worry. It's easy to jump in. Just take this pledge card from the display in the lobby, fill it out and drop it in when the offering time comes. You could also give to 2020 easily online or by even marking this special space here on the offering envelope in the seat back pocket in front of you. 
But don't wait to get in on all the wonderful things that God is doing through our church with the 2020 vision. And if you want to hear more about it, visit the landing page on our website. Now we're going to transition to the sermon, so get out your Bibles, whether by phone or the good old paperback version, and turn to Luke chapter 23 as we get ready to hear what God has for us today. All right. Some good announcements, huh? We're so glad you are here at all our campuses. I'm not Rex Keener, okay? My name is Pat Murata. I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship. Awesome to be here with you today. Is everybody in the Christmas spirit, huh? Shopping. And... Has anybody done shopping for Christmas? Raise your hand. Oh, oh man, look at this. There's people that are done. You know, this last past Wednesday was declared a national day of mourning. As the nation remembered the 41st president, George H.W. Bush, who passed away at the age of 94 last week. And on Wednesday, there was a memorial service, and I know most, if not all of you, have heard of it and heard about it. And at that memorial service, the president's son, George W. Bush, the 43rd president, gave a eulogy in remembrance of his dad. And there was a very emotional time in that eulogy. And it was when... George W. Bush shared of the final conversation he had with his father. He heard his dad was not doing well. He only had a couple of hours to live, so he phoned his father. The aide answered the phone and told him that his dad hadn't spoken in quite some time, but he could hear him. And so George W. Bush began to share how much he loved his dad and what an inspiration he was and how one day they would be together again in heaven. And then his father uttered his final words. And they were, I love you too. And he breathed his last breath shortly after uttering those final words. You know, final words intrigue us, don't they? The, the last words that people speak before they pass away. That story garnered headlines for days. And the reason is because we're so intrigued by those final words because they give us a glimpse into the very soul of a person, into what it is they value. Queen Elizabeth I, her final words on her deathbed were this, all my possessions for a moment. Winston Churchill, the leader of England during World War II, before he slipped into a coma, his final words, I'm bored with it all. You like that one, you like this one. Groucho Marx, comedian of many, many years gone by, his final words before he uttered his last breath. Dying? Well, that's the last thing I'll do. <laughs> final words. They tell you a lot about a person. But you know what tells us more than the final words a person speaks? Are the actions and the character of a life lived. Today, as we continue in our series in the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at a passage found in Luke chapter 23, verses 27 to 49, and it captures the final words spoken by Jesus as he walked that Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering, as he endured excruciating pain and the mocking and the shame of carrying his criminal cross to Golgotha, to Calvary, 
the place where he would be ultimately crucified. As Warren Wearsby once said, when Jesus was doing his greatest work in this world, going to the cross, he was uttering some of his greatest words. Words of care and compassion, words of grace, words of forgiveness. And it started in how he addressed the crowds as they were walking with him on this road of suffering, like in a procession, if you will. Pick up the passage, verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he is warning the crowds. Now, it's amazing that he even utters a word to them because of his physical condition. Remember from last week, he was flogged by the Roman soldiers inches from death. And so just to utter a word was no doubt painful, but he cared too much to remain silent. He stops the procession and he addresses the crowd, specifically the women who are mourning and weeping for him. Now understand, these are not his closest followers. We'll learn later in the passage, they're watching all of this from a distance. But rather, these are the crowds that will follow Jesus wherever he went. Many were following out of curiosity as to what he would do next. Maybe he'll perform a miracle and get himself out of this mess. Some were likely professional mourners. That was very normal in this culture and even more so given the popularity of Jesus. But one thing is absolutely certain. The crowds were genuinely saddened over how Jesus, this good man, could be so severely beaten. And they were mourning and weeping for him. But Jesus apparently is a bit uncomfortable with them weeping for him. And so he redirects their attention away from his suffering and he points it back to them. He brings the attention back to them. I don't know if you have friends or family members like this. I do. But if they're not feeling so well, if they're not doing so well with their health, and you check up on them, and you ask them, hey, how are you doing? Before you know it, they redirect the conversation back to you. They're kind of like, I'm doing fine, but how are you? And they bring the attention back to you. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, don't weep for me. I'm okay. And he's kind of redirecting it and asking this question, how are you doing? Knowing they're not doing as good as, he, as they think they're doing. So do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. And then he adds, and for your children. And then he gives this prophecy. He said, because the time is coming when you're going to wish you never had children, you're going to look up to the mountains and wish they would just fall on you and crush you. And he was pointing to this coming destruction. Now it's important that we notice how he addressed those women. He referred to them as daughters of Jerusalem. That's an Old Testament way of addressing the nation. It was used as a metaphor to address the nation as a whole. And what he's pointing to here is what he did in Luke 19. He's pointing to the coming destruction heading their way when the Romans would invade the nation, of, uh, the, would invade Jerusalem 
where hundreds of thousands of Jews would be slaughtered at the hands of the Roman government. And this is just a few decades from this moment in time, 70 A.D. And then he gives this interesting par proverb. Did you catch it? He said, for if people do these things to the tree that is green, what will happen when the tree is dropped? The green tree is a reference to that which is righteous. It's referring to himself. The dry is a reference to that which is unrighteous. So think of it this way. If you and I are going to start a campfire, we don't go and cut live branches off a tree and try to burn it. It's full of sap. It's wet. It's hard to burn. No, we go after the dry branches and they burn quickly. Think of fire as persecution. And Jesus is saying, if this is what's happening to me, the righteous one, and it's hard to burn the tree that's green, how much more will it happen to you? So do not weep for me. Now, no doubt the crowds were confused. And they must have been saying among themselves, why doesn't he want us to weep for him? Why doesn't he want us to feel bad over how he's been treated? And the reason is not because it's intrinsically wrong. The reason is because Jesus is not interested in their sympathy. He doesn't call us to feel bad over what he had to endure. Rather, he's calling the crowds to faith, to belief. Because there's so many people, millions today, that are interested in Jesus but do not believe in him as Lord and Savior. And that's how the crowds often were. They were real interested in Jesus. They followed him everywhere. And here we are at the end of his earthly ministry. And there they are genuinely feeling bad for him. But they do not believe. And out of a heart of care, and out of a heart of concern... Jesus' final words are words of warning to the crowd. Do not weep for me. Weep for the condition of your hearts. It's a heart of disbelief. It's a heart that's deceived. They completely missed who he was. Because that will not only lead to their physical destruction as they follow leaders that put them on a collision course with Rome, but more importantly than that, It will lead to spiritual destruction, leaving them with no eternal hope. No matter how much it pained him, Jesus gives this last warning to the crowds. Do not weep for me. Weep for the condition of your hearts, a heart of disbelief. The procession continues... Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, Golgotha or Calvary, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It's interesting that the gospel writers do not focus on the manner in which Jesus is crucified. There is virtually no detail on Jesus' suffering as he was fastened to the cross and hung there in the gospels. Just three words, they crucified him. A crucifixion was a horrible form of punishment. As Cicero, the Roman writer, put it, About crucifixion, he said this, it's the cruelest and most hideous 
punishment possible. F.W. Farrar in his book, The Life of Christ, said this, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, traumatic fever, shame, torment, horror of anticipation, and on it goes. And yet in the midst of his agony, and in the midst of the pain and the horror, Jesus' final words are words of forgiveness. He prays for the torturers, the ones torturing him. Father, forgive them. It's amazing. Now, it's not surprising that he prays. Can we learn a thing or two about Jesus' prayer life? He prayed all the time, we read in the Gospels. He prayed before healings. He prayed after healings. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before selecting his disciples. He prayed before feeding the 5,000. He always, always, always prayed. And so no surprise, in his most trying moment, he prays to his heavenly father. The surprise is he is not praying for himself. He is praying for the ones torturing him. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Now that last phrase kind of bothers me. They know what they're doing. They trumped up the charges. They're well aware of their actions. But you see, they're not aware of the extent of their actions, that they're crucifying the Lord of glory. We read in the book of Acts, it's shortly after the crucifixion, the resurrection, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And I think it gives us some insight around this. And Jesus, or Peter, is preaching to his fellow Jews. And it's a heavy message. It's hard. And at the heart of it, he says this. You've killed him, speaking of Jesus. You've crucified the Lord of glory and the author of life. Now, was he telling them what they knew or what they did not know? He was telling them what they did not know. And when it dawned on them by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were filled with fear. And they asked Peter, what shall we do? And he said, put your faith and trust in Christ. And on that day, 3,000 came to faith in Jesus Christ. And no doubt, some of them were present on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. See, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, it was not an immediate, unconditional prayer of forgiveness for everyone who had their hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. Rather, it was Jesus praying to his heavenly Father on behalf of those who would repent and come to faith. He was saying this, praying this, don't hold it against them. Don't hold it against them. They do not know what they're Now, no doubt that prayer was directed at those Roman soldiers that put him on that cross. But the impact of the prayer was much broader in scope than that. As one commentary writer put it, the scope of his prayer reaches to all who had a hand in securing Jesus' present position upon the cross. And that includes you and me. 
You see, it wasn't just Judas Iscariot and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish authorities and the Roman soldiers that put him on the cross. No, Jesus willingly went to the cross, right? No one took his life. He went on his own accord, John 10, and he went there for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the world. As that popular pastor of many years ago, C.H. Spurgeon, said of this prayer, as Jesus hung on that cross, this prayer of forgiveness, he said these words, and I quote, he prayed for you and me when we did not pray for ourselves. He prayed for you and me when we were crucifying him by virtue of our sins. Praying for you and me that we might find his forgiveness. The initial and enduring reflux of Jesus' crucified heart was to forgive. His final words are words of forgiveness to those who are torturing him. And yet in spite of those kind words, they all made fun of him. They all made fun of him. Pick up the passage, verse 35. The people stood watching... And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. That was a drink suitable for royalty. Even in offering him the drink, it was mocking him. They said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews, that's a true statement. And John, parallel passage, tells us that the religious elite, the Jewish authorities, were very upset with Governor Pilate because it said it was supposed to say he, he claimed to be the king of the Jews, not the king of the Jews. Interesting that it is factual statement there. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. They're all making fun of him. The leaders are sneering. Soldiers are mocking. Even the criminals are hurling insults at him. And how does Jesus respond? Silence. Silence. Incredible self Control. I mean, it's one thing to go on the cross for their sins. It's another thing to go on their cro the cross for their sins, and then they make fun of you. Man, if it were us, we'd annihilate them, right? At the very least, I would have said something like, wait until the resurrection, you know. You're going down. Something. He says nothing. Complete. Control. 1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So many lessons for us to pull out of Jesus' response throughout this Via Dolorosa. He didn't try to correct them. He doesn't argue with them. Controlled silence. Now, 
Did you get what they were all asking him to do? Hey, you're the Messiah, save yourself. You saved others, save yourself. How can you save us? You can't even save yourself. Now, before you get too hard on the crowd, if we were there, we would likely be saying the same thing. It's a completely logical human argument. Save yourself if you're the Messiah. It's interesting. The, the Roman or the Jewish authorities were mocking Jesus and they were pointing to his supernatural ability and mocking him. Isn't that something? He said he saved others. They were well aware of the miracles he performed, the calming of the sea, the healing of the lame, the leopard, the blind, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They knew he did all that. And they said, save yourself. You know people like this? If God does this one thing for me, I'll believe. You know people like that? That's what they're doing. What they're saying is, just one more miracle, and we'll believe. Reality is, no miracle would have changed their mind, other than the miracle of God's grace touching their heart. But their hearts were way too hard. They loved their status, and their position, and the community. They'd never change. They'd never follow Jesus. By the way, he's hanging on a cross, and that absolutely made no sense too. They were aware of Deuteronomy 21, 23. Anyone who hung on a cross was a curse from God. All of that to say, hear me, the cross was absurd. It was absurd. They looked at it, foolishness. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. Remember what he said, a stumbling block to the Jews. How can this be in foolishness to the Gentiles? How can he save us? Can't even save himself. It's completely upside down. And that's what ought to make every one of us pause and realize it's from God because his ways are so much higher than our ways. And it's because he does not save himself that he's able to save others. Let me say that again. It's because he does not save himself that he's able to save others that humble themselves and are touched by the grace of God and draw near to him through Christ, like one of the criminals on the cross. You see, we read in a parallel passage in Mark and Matthew that both criminals were hurling insults at Jesus, but one fell silent. He had a change of heart while the other continued to rebuke Jesus. But the one that fell silent was getting frustrated, and he came to Jesus' defense, and he began to rebuke the other criminal. Pick up the passage, verse 40. He says, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly, 
For we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, the mocking and the yelling comes this solo voice of sanity. Spiritual sanity from, of all people, a hardened criminal. And he has a change of heart. Perhaps it's because he saw the meekness of Christ and how he allowed himself to be punished. He heard the warning that Jesus gave to the daughters of Jerusalem out of a heart of care and concern for them. Do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. He heard the prayer that he gave up to the ones torturing him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He saw the obvious difference between the holiness of Jesus and his own sins and crimes. He knew he was a sinner. He said to the other criminal, we're getting what we deserve. This man did nothing wrong without saying. He feared God. Don't you fear God, he said. And he was humbled. And he had a change of heart. And within a moment, he went from disbelief to belief. And he turned to Jesus. He said, you're the Messiah. I like how one writer imagined how this unfolded. He wrote this. I wonder if the mocking stopped as this, as this soul defender speaks up. I wonder if Jesus turned to him to the one offering this final gesture of love that he'd received while alive. He said, I think Jesus smiled at him. And the criminal, please, remember me. Remember me. And Jesus said, I'll remember you. He gives grace to this criminal. His final words are words of eternal hope and eternal life to, of all people, a hardened criminal. Now think about this. That criminal had nothing to give Jesus. He was as good as dead. It wasn't like he was going to go and start some wonderful ministry for the kingdom of God. He was dead. He had nothing to give. And I believe that is the point of it all. Because you and I are just like that criminal when it comes to eternal life. When it comes to his grace, none of us deserve it. We can't give anything for that. You can't earn it. You can't work your way to it. Because we all fall short. There's nothing we can give other than what the criminal gave. He gave his heart as a free gift to those who yield their life to him. And Jesus said, pregnant with meaning, surely I say to you, assurance, today, immediate, you will be with me, personal, in paradise, heaven, today. It's incredible. 
you know, Jesus is all about today. When you look at the Gospels, you will see this. When he, when he was reading the scriptures in the synagogue, he said, today the word has been fulfilled in me. When Zacchaeus, the tax collector, followed Jesus, they went to Zacchaeus' home. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this home. And here we are to the pleas of this criminal. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, sometimes I think we get bogged down and burdened by our past. And we get so preoccupied with our future, we miss today. Today matters to God. And please, 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 please. don't be presumptuous with this passage and think, I'm just going to wait until I'm old, on my deathbed, and I'm going to come to faith in Christ. Listen, this is the only deathbed conversion story in the Bible. Normally doesn't happen that way, and you and I know this. We just don't know whether or not we'll have the luxury of a deathbed experience we, we, we don't know how we're going to pass away. Remember this passage as well. Today is the day of salvation. Today. You know what's interesting about this? You have two criminals hanging on a cross, and they both ask Jesus for the exact same thing. Save me. Jesus responds to one and completely ignores the other. He responds to the repentant criminal. We just talked about it because his heart was softened and he drew near to God in Christ Jesus. He ignored the other because his heart was hard. He was bitter. He was angry. He didn't fess up to his own sins and crimes. And Jesus ignored him. He didn't witness to him. He didn't try to correct him. The man died in disbelief. What's amazing is both experienced exactly the same thing as they walked that procession, as they hung on the cross next to Jesus, but with two totally opposite responses. One saw the cross as a contradiction. That's an absurdity. The other saw the cross as a con. How are we responding to the cross? Let's continue. Verse 44 was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. There's his last words. Darkness for three hours. I mean, how unsettling is that? And what the darkness reflected was the judgment of God. As one commentary writer put it, it was not caused by the absence of God, but rather by his presence in full judgment, infinite wrath, moved by infinite righteousness, released infinite punishment on the Son. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine, and he asked me a very relevant question to this passage. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? A very good question. Very high level. 
very unlovable. The reason is because God is holy and righteous. He hates sin, and sin must be punished. To which all of us would say, yeah, that's the God I would want, when you think about it. Wrongdoing must be punished. Let me put it this way. God gives you and me something beautiful and something horrible at the same time. Do you know what it is? Don't say marriage. It's heavy. I'm trying to throw some humor in this. Free will. It's beautiful because without it, we cease to be human. We'd be robots. It's horrible because with it, we can do bad. Do wrong things. We can do evil. We can elevate our will above God's will. Go all the way to the beginning. Genesis 2. Adam and Eve. In the beginning. Remember, God created the earth perfect. Genesis 2.16. It was good. There was no death, no decay, no suffering, no pain. In the beginning. The way God intended it to be. And God said to Adam and Eve, enjoy it. Enjoy paradise. Just don't do this one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They exerted their free will and did exactly what God told them not to do. They elevated their will, small g, they became little gods over the will of, of God. And ever since that point in time, the world became fallen. A fallen world is what we live in from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to today where there's pain, there's suffering, there's sin, there's death, there's decay. And every one of us have inherited this sin nature. All it means is this. We have a natural tendency without being humbly and yielded to the Spirit of Christ. Every one of us has a natural tendency to put our will above, not only God's will, above anybody else's will. It all, all it means is this. We fall short. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone an all-perfect, just God's standards. You know it, and I know it, deep in our hearts. We ain't perfect. Not compared to God. There's no way we can reconcile ourselves to him. Doesn't even make sense. So to the question, why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Because he loves us. And he took our sin and our wrongdoings and our shortcomings and he put it on his son Jesus and he punished it there. You see, the cross is a beautiful display of the attributes of God. It is the justice and righteousness of God that intersects with the love of God. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. His righteousness imputed, given to us for as white as snow in the eyes of God. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. And during this dark three hours, when the sins of the world, past, present, future, it's very hard to even wrap our limited minds around this, when the sins of the world are being poured on Jesus, it's dark. In a parallel passage, we read that he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what that is a picture of, 
is broken fellowship. For a moment. So mysterious and hard to put our minds around it. But it's when the Father God, who hates sin, had to turn his back on his son as the sins of the world are being poured out on him. But at the end of three hours, we hear a tearing noise coming from inside the temple. Divine vandalism. See, under the old covenant temple system, very quickly, men and women could not just enter into the presence of God. No. There was rights and rules and regulations and certain time periods. In fact, only the, the high priest could enter the holy of holies, which is where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God resided inside the temple. And what separated God from everyone were these thick curtains. And only the high priest could enter into the presence of God once a year and offer sacrifice on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. And you know what those curtains represented and symbolized? No access. They symbolized that God is holy, we are not. But when the darkness ended, the curtains began to tear. And God was ripping them from top to bottom, these no-access curtains removed. And the old priestly way of entering into the presence of God abolished. And now those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, he is our high priest, and we can enter his presence anytime. Unlimited access. As the writer of Hebrews put it, therefore let us draw near with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The old covenant people would have died for that kind of access. And as the curtains tore and the darkness ended, Jesus shouts out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His final words are words of reunion with his heavenly father. Remember, prior it was, my God, my God. Now back to father. And then this word of trust. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Think of a child jumping into the arms of his loving father. He has trust, and that's a word of trust. Into your hands I commit my spirit, his final words. In a parallel passage, we read that Jesus shouted, it is finished. Those were his last words. Now that was no cry, by the way, of defeat. That was a cry of victory. I like how pastor and author John Piper said of this cry. He said, had his hands not been fastened down, I dare say that a triumphant fist would have punched the sky. No, this is no cry of despair. It's a cry of completion, a cry of fulfillment, a cry of relief, a cry of victory. And the centurion guard sitting there at the foot of the cross witnessing the whole thing, he understood this was a cry of victory. Let's close out the passage, verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. 
but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, those are his close followers, stood at a distance watching these things. A centurion guard, a roaming commanding soldier, witnessed thousands of crucifixions, is completely blown away by what he just experienced. He saw the poise of Jesus. He heard the kind words of compassion and grace and forgiveness. He was scared with three hours of darkness. He heard the tearing noise from inside the temple. Parallel passage tells us there was an earthquake. He knew this was no normal crucifixion. And he knew Jesus was no mere man. No mere carpenter, no mere peasant. He was extraordinary. He was a righteous person, and he praised God. No one else praised God. The crowds, they beat their breasts. That's a sign of mourning. By the way, really quite different from what would normally happen at a crucifixion. The crowds would be vindicated. You got what you deserve, but not in Jesus' case. They were convicted. Some were hanging on, hoping that at the very last minute he'd come down from the cross and be their political messiah and free them from Roman occupation. Didn't happen. Their hopes were dashed. They were mourning. One thing's clear. They were not praising God. And you know who else was not praising God? His followers. His closest followers. They were full of fear on the day of the crucifixion. It wasn't until the resurrection that their courage kicked in but not in the day of the crucifixion. Well, that's the passage. And real quick, I just want to close with this. It's interesting to know that the only two people that we know about that praised and worshipped God as a result of the crucifixion is a hardened criminal in a Roman Soldier. Both of them blasphemed God. They hurled insults at Christ. They persecuted him. And yet they had a change of heart. They were touched by the grace of God in and through the crucifixion. They were moved by the final words of Jesus. Words of care. Words of compassion, words of forgiveness, words of hope. But it wasn't just his words. It was his actions. It was his character, his perseverance, his control as he endured the agony, the pain, the suffering, the mocking, the insults, the broken fellowship. And they knew this was no ordinary crucifixion. They had a change of heart. A hardened criminal and a Roman soldier who executed thousands. And you know what that change of heart tells us? That no one is beyond the reach of God's love. No matter where you've been, what you've done, Regrets that we all have, especially during the holiday Christmas season. So many people have regrets and sadness over relationships that have been broken. Listen, no one is beyond the love 
God in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he stayed on the cross. And I close with this quote from pastor and author, a prolific writer, Max Lucado, in his book on Calvary Hill. He said, this is why Jesus stayed on the cross as he's about to see the nails being driven into his hands. And I quote, as the soldiers pressed his arm, Jesus rolled his head to the side and with his cheek resting on the wood, he saw a mallet, yes, a nail, yes, the soldier's hand, yes, but he saw something else. Between his hand and the wood, there was a list, a long list of our mistakes, our lust and lies and greedy moments and prodigal years, a list of our sins, the bad decision last year, the bad attitudes from last week, there in broad light, daylight for all of heaven to see was a list of your mistakes. He saw the list. He knew the price of those sins was death. He knew the source of those sins was you. And since he couldn't bear the thought of eternity without you, he chose the nail. In this Christmas season, as we reflect on the birth of Jesus, never forget, he came into the world to die for the sins of the world because he's the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father God, you are uh, such an awesome God. Father, we're just so blown away by the depths of your love for us. It's incredible. And Father, I don't know where everyone is in their journey to you, but here's my prayer, Father. My prayer is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would draw each and every one of us closer to you in and through the cross of Jesus. There's nothing as beautiful as your love that's displayed right there on that cross. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you do and all that you will continue to do through a body of believers that puts our faith and trust in you and in your power. We thank you, Father, for all the blessings. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. At this time, I would like to invite the ushers up to...